0: Hey everybody, Chris Aiken from the CMS Podcast Network, and if you are a person that likes to watch our videos, whether it's Classic Metal Show, Talk To Me, Skull Sessions, or Aftershocks, do not do it on YouTube. Do you hear me? Do not do it on YouTube. Go to fupal.com, F-V-I-E-W-P-A-L.com. You are
1: about to enter the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast on shockwaveskullsessions.com. And now, your host, Bob Nalbandian. Well, here we go. Another episode of Shockwave Skull Sessions. And of course, we got the men of self, Darn Medium, Maven of Metal, Mr. Bob (laughs) Nalbandian. What's up, Bob?
2: Good. I'll never live that title down. Never never. going on
1: that. That's it. That's your name.
2: (laughs) All right. Got a great episode, man. Got the uh, stream yard going again. So for those that. I have video, you can check it out through StreamYard. Otherwise, of course, you could uh, check it out via audio, but I do suggest the video because uh, you can see all our pretty faces here. And we got a lot of pretty faces on this one, man.
3: We got James
2: Beach, uh, uh, extraordinary editor for the uh, uh, phone book, a brand new phone book. Look at this thing. Jesus Christ, man. How, how, how big? How do you make money off this thing? The printing costs alone must cost a fortune.
4: It's uh, it's not cheap, unfortunately, but we kind of intended it to be a little smaller than that, but it's just the way it goes sometimes. So. All
2: right. Rusted Metal awesome. is the title of the brand new book, A Guide to Heavy Metal and Hard Rock Music in the Pacific Northwest from 1970 to 1995. Um, I was a big fan of uh, a lot of the Northwest metal bands, and along with James Beach, we got a couple guys from Sanctuary uh we got um the uh original guitar player lenny rutledge how you doing there lenny i'm good and we got brand new singer yeah all right. well, I guess, are you a uh, brand new i guess not not fairly new obviously. Couple of
0: years.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he's,
0: he's beyond rookie status now
2: all right, all right. cool so uh we'll be talking everything to northwest metal here um you know from the early days from the from the 80s and you know the pre-grunge era uh there was a lot of stuff happening in the northwest but james why don't you start out and talk a little bit about the uh, new book you have
4: well so rusted metal a a book i started uh with a friend of mine brian naren um back in the summer of 2014 and we both, you know, I had the idea, I, I've worked in writing and publishing and editing for, for a number of years now, and um, kind of started, we did horror fiction, was a magazine I did for about 10 years in a book line, and worked for a couple other book publishers in that field, and I did a couple special issues on horror and rock, and I'd always liked, growing up, I was always a fan of, of music, and especially gravitated towards hard rock and metal, um, you know, pretty young and uh you know got into kiss in the 70s as a lot of kids did and just kind of gravitated towards you know acdc and van halen and then the new album came out and i got started buying a lot of those records of maine and Saxon. and you know we kind of had a, some bands coming out in portland and seattle that were pretty cool that were really kind of taking some of those influences and, and doing their own thing and and so we'd hear Queen's Queensryche on the radio, I'd hear Wild Dogs or or Rail or a lot of these guys were getting airplay pretty heavy. And um, so, you know, I grew up with this music. I went to various shows over the years at the clubs, mainly in Portland, but I went to a few in Seattle too and mm-hmm. um, had family up there and and my parents are from there. So we, we went up there a lot and I got to go to a lot of the record stores and and some shows up there and things. And you know it it was one of those things the grunge thing hit um you know a lot of people were doing books on that stuff and some of the bands that became famous and we just kind of i just kind of kept going hey nobody's doing anything on the metal scenes though and we had so much you know we had so many good bands and you know just a lot of bands and over the years and a lot of them influenced other people and and so I just kind of, I kind of expected Jeff Gilbert, who was a big guy in the scene and of you course. know Lenny knows him quite a bit too. I know. And um, you know, somebody like him, who's a writer or, or somebody, you know, in the scene and just, nobody ever did one. And so I just kind of figured, well, you know, I know enough about this stuff. I could probably put something together and tap to uh, tap my friend, Brian, who I'd known from, I met him like at record collector shows in around 1990 and, we stayed friends over the years and and Brian's a huge archivist. He's seen tons of shows and he collected all kinds of music related stuff, especially a lot of Northwest stuff. He, he was the one that turned me on to a lot of stuff. Um, he's a, he's a lifelong Tacoma guy. Um, so he saw a lot of stuff up North there. And we just, you know, it was something he was kind of thinking of too. And so we, we partnered up to work on it together. Uh, a couple other friends ca- ended up coming into it that helped a lot along the way with with doing interviews and writing parts and and had a lot of archival material. And so it just it really came together. And um, uh, a friend of ours, James Toland, who uh, went back into scene being a manager for his friends band Overlord and was kind of, you know, friends with a lot of other guys and, and people in other bands, he still was pretty well liked and had a lot of connections with people and so he opened up a lot of doors and between us all we kind of just went after everybody we kind of knew or knew of and tried to get a, a number of interviews that would you know wasn't going to be one from every band kind of thing but more notable people or inter- people that had interesting stories or you know especially people that were involved in the scene throughout the years and still are were were something we really wanted to kind of talk to those people and show, you know, that scene was viable then, and it still is now, and, you know, probably more so than, you know, it, it was even back then in some ways. But, um, you know, so it just kind of came together. Um, it took a long time for research, though. It took about five years to write the book and a lot of research, a lot of travel um, interviewing. I tried to interview as many people as we could in person kind of thing. Um, that's always a lot more fun and more interesting than somebody kind of typing their answers back, but, but we had some of that stuff too. And, um, you know, so we interviewed people with, with a lot of, from a lot of the different bands in Portland and Seattle. Um, so we covered in this book, we covered pretty much tried to cover the whole Northwest, Oregon, Washington, even Idaho to a degree had some metal bands and like a lot of traveling bands kind of hit those areas and also Vancouver, BC just because that was over the border. So a lot of people came over our way or, or vice versa. And, and uh, so there was definitely a lot of integration and, you know, Hart recorded up there in Queensreich and other bands over the years. So so there's definitely connections with those. And, um, you know, we just really, the book started out to be more of a narrative type of thing where it just kind of told the story. And And as time went on, that didn't really work. So I turned it into a reference guide and just rewrote it and kind of did it. Uh, um, in that way because it, a lot of it was pretty repetitive we were trying to tell a story where the bands were telling you know members of the bands were telling the same story and the information was telling the same story in bios and things so so it ended up just making more sense to to do it as as a reference guide that you could look through and see bands and read some interviews that kind of elaborated on a lot of the scene with it and um, and it just worked out much better that way. It still ended up being a huge thing, but it would have been a lot bigger if we did it the other way. Um, but we traveled around, uh, talked to a lot of people and, um, you know, uh, boy, God, we had almost a hundred interviews. I think about 92, 93 interviews, something like that. Um, with people from different bands, um, all over the Northwest and, um, you know, some of it was sitting down with people at a restaurant. Some of it was like Metal Church. I interviewed Kurt and Mike Howe and Rick Van Zandt backstage before they played. Um, Lenny, we talked to, and Royal Dane um, out at Lenny's place. We kind of, they invited us out for a barbecue and had a lot of fun doing that and doing the interview. And, um, you know, it was, it was really cool to hang with them and see the little home studio that they had there. And, and talk about a lot of that and and yeah we just we talked to so many different people it was really cool so it just it just kind of blossomed and then it it took about a year and a half to edit the thing after that because there was just there was a lot of stuff to go through and so many people kept popping up so many people just like oh yeah, my band was this. I'm like, oh, okay. So now we've got some people that were actually in the band. (laughs) We, you know, we made the decision to include lesser known bands that maybe some of these were even just sort of pickup bands that played a battle of the bands or two or something. Um, You know, that, that sort of goof band or whatever with friends, but, but it seemed like there was a lot of relevance just because people went on to other bands and and you know, as I said, a lot of people. A lot say, of history like- there, man. A lot of history. Yeah. I mean,
2: starting yeah. from the '70s, obviously with Heart and a lot of other bands. But Matt, I'm curious. Being from New York, what was your introduction? Was it like Queensrÿch? I mean, it was obviously pre-run. Yeah. What was your introduction to like the Northwest? Yeah, it Chelsea? was Queen.
1: It was definitely Queensrÿch when that you know four song you know the EP came out, and right. uh, a buddy of mine's brother. He had an older brother who had gotten in. And I was, I think, in fifth grade or something. I was really young. But I remember him saying, Hey, man, you know, we got to listen to this record. This, I'm really digging these guys. I'm like, Who's this? And he's like, This band, Queensrank. And so we played it, you know, we heard that. And obviously, yeah, that's that was my introduction, obviously. Yeah. To, to I mean, I, th- I think like most people across the country, at, at least at my age or a little older than me, it was definitely Queensrank, no doubt. Yeah. And what I was w- wondering, James, too, and I, I guess, you know, Len, yeah, you could well, talk about. It, was too. Oh,
2: go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say, one of the things I did notice, you know, um, because of all the detail, the minutiae in the book and everything, I mean, it seemed like musicians in the area too, they were always like in like three or four bands at a time, sort of thing, right? It was like because you, you definitely did a great job, you guys, connecting all the bands together, um, with all the detail and the minutiae that's in here and stuff. And I guess was that kind of what it was like, Lenny? Was it just everybody had like two or three bands going at once to to try to, you know, I guess I mean, what was the, you know? I guess the, I mean, the, were the musicians, we, we, were, were you guys looking to really hone down and have one band or was it sort of that thing you were just kind of looking around and whatever was going to stick, it stuck, or whatever picked up, picked up, you know, uh, through fans within the metal scene?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we knew, knew bands like that, but for the most mm-hmm. part, I, I think the, the the guys who were super focused were kind of focused on one, one particular band and just kind okay. of giving it all for that. I mean, I know a lot of the later on, a lot of the uh, the grunge guys kind of did a little bit more of that. And it seemed like they shared a lot of that. A little bit more of uh, you know, like Pearl okay. Jam, and Temple of the Dog, and stuff like that. I mean, that was very common. I don't know it as much, um, you know, in in the metal scene. I mean, it probably happened. You know, we were just kind of so focused and in our little own little world. I think we were kind of we were part of the scene, but. So it seemed like we were kind of, you know, we we didn't become part of it, but we started to become more known. You know, we were we just kind of kept to ourselves and really hunkered down a lot. It rains a lot up here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, hey, Lenny, I want to ask you. I think we met before uh, with Sanctuary, a dinner party, when you first uh, signed with CBS. I think the debut record had just come out. And White Rabbit was getting a little bit of airplay, I think, on Candy C at the time. But Hannah Bolte from Epic Records, do you remember Hannah, the publicist? Yeah. Yes, I we do. Yeah. To dinner at the Rainbow, I was working with Metal mm. Rendezvous. She invited me and we all hung out. So, I, I mean, this had to be, got 80, what when that record come out, 87, really 88? Like
0: 87, probably, yeah.
2: Yeah, we went out to the Rainbow. And I remember your drummer was underage and he got in trouble for drinking. He didn't. Oh, I've yeah. never caught the rainbow. They said, "Hey, you're not supposed to drink, but it's okay. You were there." That, yeah, you know, that's probably me. right. Yeah, that would be right. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, you <remember> here.
0: <laughs> I do remember going out to dinner. I don't remember the details. It's you know, it was quite a long time ago. But I do remember she took us out, uh, yeah, at least yeah. once.
2: So yeah. Well, those were the good days when the labels they did that, and, and Hannah was the greatest. She invited me yeah. to. All I mean Epic had a lot of the metal bands at that time. Well and that they were, were doing it,
0: so you know, they it was all, all about that. It was great. They, they, exactly they, you know they, we'd
2: go out, they'd take a the press out to dinner with the bands and yeah. they actually had budgets to do that. But oh I mean, yeah, yeah, that, that was funny. But yeah, I mean Sanctuary, I was a big fan of that. And I think I think my introduction was kind of, you know, funny. Being in LA or Orange County LA area, I remember the first Metal Massacre came out uh and that had malice and i love those two malice tracks "Captain of light and kick you down and obviously they you know they moved to la uh, in, in the mid 80s or early 80s but they originated out of i, I believe the 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 or, uh, uh seattle
4: they're portland guys um seattle,
2: portland. I was, yeah i thought they were portland guys
0: came
4: yeah they, matt matt yeah, still arguing with me about that one <laughs> he thinks <Right>. that they're <laughs> an la band, but they um no, they, so they they recorded demos. In portland. yeah there was whole there was an interesting thing around them black and blue and wild dogs were sort of like they were all friends um jeff the guitarist jeff horton jeff that went by jeff mark there was the wild dogs guitarist he worked um as like an intern for the record one of the bigger recording studios in portland recording associates and he got um, some recording time. And so the, the wild dogs thing was kind of just a project. And, um, I guess on the original malice demos, Dean Castronovo and Matt play bass and drums on. that. And so just James Neal and Jay Reynolds and those two guys from wild dogs. And, um, they uh, so they all sort of had this thing, and Jamie J- St. James and Pete Holmes both played on a couple different sets of Wild Dogs demos. So there was there was sort of that incestuous thing with them too, and and just as things were sort of happening, the story with I talked to both Mark Bain from Malice and Pete Holmes from um, from Black and Blue, and their stories kind of mirror Black and Blue being the one that went and moved down there first. But they were, Pete said that. Um, When they were movie star, um, which had Julian Raymond on vocals, uh, and they were kind of a hard rock, sort of heavier cars kind of thing at the time, um, from what I understand from people, I was too young, I never saw them, but but they played a lot of clubs and they were really popular and and bigger venues and played up in Seattle with different people and and um, Julian decided to quit and Jamie wanted to step in on the vocals and so they hired Pete on drums, right? Yeah. He yeah. played drums before that. And he yeah. played drums in jet, which was kind of a kiss sort of wannabe band. They did some kiss covers and some kind of sweet and different things. And, and, uh, they kind of evolved into movie stars as, as the years went on. And, and when they got Pete on drums, he was just such a heavy drummer that they just naturally became heavier. And that was what they liked anyway, with a lot of the stuff that was coming out of England and, and the LA scene. And, and, um, Pete said that they, they had a, a guy, Andy Gilbert, that was booking. He booked a lot of the hard rock bands from the seventies and and pop bands and different stuff. And he said, Pete said, he just hated him. He said, you're, you're too heavy. You know, he didn't like him at all. And so he put him on like crappy Monday nights or whatever. And so they were getting like kind of screwed in Portland, but they were getting playing the Troubadour and the rainbow and, and everything down in LA. And, and he said after a year of going down there and, and playing a bunch of nights, Um, You know, month after month, they just moved down there. And there was, you know, obviously there wasn't record labels in Portland, you know, of any major labels. Wasn't much in Seattle. Um, The 70s, there was a couple hubs up there. That's kind of how, like, Stryker, um, Hmm. which had Scott Rosberg and Rick Randall that kind of went back in the California music scene, Um, they... Their band got signed to Arista. Um, TKO got signed. Heart yeah, got yeah. signed. So there was, you know, there was some different major labels up there. But that all died as as it went into the '80s. The, yeah. the laws kind of changed, and record companies really cut back on stuff. And
2: well, you know, it's and, interesting because the independent labels. I, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but I was gonna say, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, particularly Metal Blade and Shrapnel is where you know Shrapnel had Wild Dogs i remember the tonight show off either their, their, their uh us metal Two. Yeah. i think i was on it they had uh, uh, uh such a great so- a song i remember seeing them i think before black and blue moved to la they did a show at the country club with wild dogs the country club was a yeah big
4: they played song. they played down in california matt says a lot of people still think he's a, that they were a san francisco band they played down there quite a bit
2: i always thought people they were well, yeah, yeah yeah san francisco uh, they were um, uh, but uh, i i knew a black and blue earlier through kj dotton uh we were tape traders and i do remember um a tko uh what were, were they on at atlantic because they weren't a major and then they went to combat yeah, they and I were remember, remember on combat.
4: they were a, an offshoot of mca that a okay. guy ron alexenberg um headed up the label i guess I he was a big a guy yeah, yeah, they they did the first record on that and then they had a second record in the can or starting to go in there kind of thing I it wasn't quite done. They there's some multi tracking on the stuff. In fact, it's actually uh, It's this uh, I, yeah, I see this that. record that we put out um, yeah. a couple years back on a little label that I do with Brian um, called Northwest Metalworks. We, this was supposed to be their second album in 79. It probably would have come out like early. Yeah. So they kind of swapped yeah. out the first drummer <laughs> and bass player with it, with some friends from Yakima. It was a heavier drummer named Bill Durham. who was very John Bonham influence, double bass right. drum stuff. He had and all that. And, um, Evan Sheeley from Q5 and also TKO on bass. Right. Um, and so they had a really heavy rhythm section. And then this stuff, it's not quite metal. It's not as, you know, sort of Van Halen influence kind of metal that the, the In Your Face record was. But it definitely would have been very heavy for late 79, early 80 when the record might have come out. But the, but the label folded. It's a really funny story that Brad Sinsel tells in the book, The Singer, about the guy that was the label head, Ron Alexenberg. He signed The Pope. To a record and this record exists it's out there there's not the uh, actual pope the actual pope john paul ii so they did a record (laughs) um they paid him something like six million non-recoupable not an advance like a license fee kind of thing so you couldn't make you know any of it back kind of thing and it it just it was half either i can't remember if it was a double record friend of mine actually has it or if it was one side was speeches and one side was like the pope doing folk songs but it just tanked. It tanked, and th- by then he cost the record label so much, like like the parent company MCA, so much money that they shut it down. And mm-hmm. and some mm-hmm. bands like New England was on the label. They got signed. A couple that, yeah. other bands, but not TKO. They're like, no, we don't want. It. Well,
2: <laughs> so, they did a, they got back on, on combat, and they put that yeah, uh, yeah, and. Did they get a little bit heavier then? Because they were, uh, that's yeah. when I kind of got into that. So and then I know Brad later joined War Babies. He kind of yeah. got into that whole grunge movement a little bit later. Kind of Alice in Chains. I think they were a little bit too late on that.
4: They yeah. were, yeah, they were history. They were a little more. War Babies was the guitarist from Slaughterhouse-Five um, that were actually going to do a record and put out their stuff um, with Brad. And it was sort of a, a come-lately band. He basically... TKO broke up in late 86 and he did like a project with Rick Pierce. That was the original, one of the original TKO guitars. And he was just kind of floundering around thinking he basically was going to retire from music and the war babies thing happened. And he got into that. And then all of a sudden they got signed on. Yeah. Nick Turzo That was the guy, I think the, the same guy that signed Alison Chain signed them and, and they worked with, um, but, but yeah, that, TKO is a really interesting story of bad luck, maybe a lot of it their own, <laughs> and they'll fully admit that, but just kind of, you know, you get on a major label, at least they were touring with, the they, their first tour was like 30 dates, I think, with the Kinks as kind of their training ground, then, oh, they, wow. then they played like 20-something dates opening for Cheap Trick after they'd come back from, from the Budokan tour thing. And then they played even like a handful of dates with like Angel and a few other bands sure. and okay. and uh, came back and were working on the stuff. And they went over and did like uh, they did the Texas Jam and they did Mississippi River Jam with UFO and ACDC and Van Halen and all these guys. And came back and recorded some stuff, went out to the Japan Jam with Hart and the Beach Boys and came back in the record. So we're labels. talking late 70s here.
2: Right? Yeah, this was 79. Yeah. Okay.
4: And Did so they do the Texas
2: jam with Aerosmith? Was that the one with Aerosmith and New Jam? Uh, was it Aerosmith with him? I think that I think so, yeah. I think
4: Jam, like Aerosmith, and yeah. Art, and a few
2: people. It was kind of like the same as the Cal jam, but yeah, it was same, kind of same lineup. Wow. Yeah,
4: that one was huge. That's like that was like sure. 60, 70,000 people or something. I got the, the video case. of yeah. the uh,
2: the old uh, VHS video of Aerosmith. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> dance, but, uh, Sanctuary yeah. guys, man. What's uh, what's your uh uh so how did the, the band uh, a Sanctuary form? I I, I know uh, 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 now was was World was he in a band before Sanctuary or how did everything kind of come together then?
0: Yeah, World was in um, Serpent's Night. That's right. Uh, you know, yeah. at the time when we found him, you know, Sanctuary was kind of
1: uh, you guys stole him,
0: right? <laughs> <I really> did. <laughs> you know, it's weird because. You know, sometimes I tell that story and people hate me for it. But then, you know, it's mm-hmm. like I don't, I don't know a band who hasn't done that. Sure. I mean, that seems like that's all we, you know, that's how we get the or people move up into, you know, at different ranks or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, we started Sanctuary out for I don't, know, I think we were a band for about a year or so, maybe more. Um, and we, we were trying out a bunch of people. It was my cousin and I, and literally when we were. I don't know. We were we were still youngins, and we were talking about the fact that we, you know, someday we were going to start a band called Sanctuary. I don't know how we managed to pull all that together, but I mean, we we thought about it years before we actually did it, and um, you know, once we finally got it all together, we we were always searching for the right people, you know, and um, eventually we got Dave Budbill and. and he knew world. You know, he's like, I know this guy, he's kind of a weird dude, and he sings really cool. And he's in a band called Serpent's Night. He's like, I will call him and see if you know, see if they're interested. Because the, the thing about us is we had this, we had this huge stage setup. It was absolutely ridiculous, but you could never move this thing. And we had this massive warehouse. And when you walked in there, it was hard to not be impressed. You just right away it's you know Dave was blown away by it he's like man i I'll you know I'm gonna tell Worrell about all this and you know we'll get him to see if we can get him to come down and it was the same thing but by the time world had come down we had actually upgraded to this giant this warehouse that was so huge you could park like four semis in this thing it was it was gigantic right and so we had the stage in it and it, and it actually had like this Uh, like area up above where it was kind of like a catwalk and people could look down on us while we were playing and everything. And this is where we rehearsed every day, you (laughs) know, and and, and we were lucky enough to, uh, to have a, there was a sound company in there, too, so we had all their PA gear as well. So when world came down to check it out, I mean, the look on his face was, holy shit, what's going on here? I mean, you guys are, you know, what are you doing? I mean, it was like a stage that some big band would have, you know. Of course, remember, we could never move this thing, so we never actually got to use it anywhere. It was just kind of a ridiculous thing that we built, but it looked really impressive. But when he came down, you know, we had a bunch of songs already written, and, he really liked the stuff, and you know, we gave him um, a couple of the songs, and um, literally the next week he came back with uh, a handful of songs already written. So we kind of took off from there. Pretty cool.
2: What an underrated vocalist he was, man.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. I, mean,
2: he, I mean, he should have been right up there with the Jeff Tates and all that. Just an amazing voice.
4: Yeah. I saw uh, – so I was like 17 maybe, I think, when I first saw you guys in Portland opening for Megadeth. In 87, I don't even think the record was out yet. I didn't know who you guys were, but uh, we yeah, yeah. yeah, I think
3: it was. And
4: yeah, that's right, I was, just, I was just blown away. I was like, oh my god, these guys are amazing. They're like you know, Queens reich meets Metallica or Megadeth or something. It's just you know, like you had enough thrash element. I was big into that by then. I kind of went through, um, uh, you know finding out about Metallica and Slayer and, you know, 84 kind of range, Metal Church and, and, uh, and all that. And so I, you know, I came to see Megadeth and I'm like, oh my God, these guys are, <laughs> and so I, you know, and so I got to see you guys a couple times, but I just remember being blown
0: away. I'm like, these guys are from Seattle.
2: What? <laughs> you
0: know? It was a really fun show. You know, we did, we did like a handful of dates with Megadeth before we really did anything. You know I mean? I remember we were, we were terrified, just because you know we 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 were one of those bands that didn't play around a lot in Seattle. So you know, at the point where we started to get some traction, we'd actually never done anything live. We weren't a live band. We were just a band that we we, we practiced a lot. But you know, once we finally got out there, it was luckily we pulled it off. You know what I mean? It worked out for us because it wasn't like we were a seasoned band or anything. You know what I mean? We just We've been in our basement and studio, you know, for years. But that was it. But yeah, that was a great fun show. The Queens model. I
2: was say, did, yeah. Did, did, yeah, did Dave Mustang, Yeah. Dave Mustaine produced that first album, right?
0: Yeah. You yeah. know, and um, I mean, again, it, that's a a really interesting story because, and a lot of people think that uh, you know, there's no way that that you actually did this. But uh, I'm not kidding. There was a point where. You know, we had gotten as as far as we could go, and I, I think I think we didn't want to become one of those bands that um, just played the clubs a lot because we knew a lot of those those bands around Seattle, and they would get sort of stuck in that club environment, and you know, you would just never get out of that. and And we wanted to try a different route. And I remember telling the guys, "Hey, look." You know, um, you know, we were into different types of music and stuff like that. But I, for some reason, I had this, this—I uh, don't know—I felt like I, mentally, I don't know why, but I felt like I had an affiliation with Megadeth. <laughs> you know, what I mean, they hadn't even been around that long. And uh, you know, I remember telling the guys—you uh, know—they were they were coming through town with King Diamond—and I remember telling the guys, "I'm going to go to the show, and I'm going to take our demo." That uh, you know ended up being released later as Inception, but I I took that and I said I'm gonna, I'm gonna meet Dave Mustaine and I'm gonna tell him to check this out and see if he can help. us. I mean I actually said those words yeah. and that sounds <laughs> absolutely ridiculous, but it happened. I mean it's like yeah, I I pulled wow. you know, up and you know I couldn't get backstage. Of course they're not gonna let some you know metal dude backstage. You know right? But mm-hmm. I but I happened to be walking back behind the Moore Theater. And I heard the roadies talking about where they were staying. And they were stay, staying at, uh, I think it was a hotel called the Tropicana. And um, I, I rode down there with my buddies. And, you know, we had two girls with us. And literally, we found the parking garage. And we walked every floor of that hotel until we found the loud room. And that the door happened to be open, man. And I was like, okay, this is the moment. And I opened the door, and I the two girls went in first, and that caused a distraction. <laughs> and as, where this happened, Dave Mustaine looked at me, and he pointed to me, and I thought, oh, fuck. Yeah, this is it. He's going to throw me out. <laughs> and he said, come here. And I went over and sat down by him. And literally, you know, because he had kind of a reputation, you know. I mean, we all know oh, about it. Oh, wow. But he was – we just locked in. I don't know what it was. We locked in and – and and we hit it off and it was like next thing i know we we've been talking for hours you know the, the time just you know went on and on and 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 i convinced him after a while to come down to the car and listen to our our demo tape you know because of course back then everything was on cassette and um, and he liked it and uh, next thing i know dave Mustaine has handed me his phone number and i'm like Wow, this did not
5: this mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those were all from like church-going women, right? Of like, course. Were, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> 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 I,
3: I thought you women guys women were kind of like
4: the Queensrÿch sort of story. It reminded me of uh, you know because that that was what kind of blew us away. Queensrike was very similar in that they they, they never didn't play much. Yeah, they well they. They were the mob before that but without jeff he kind of filled in with a couple shows with him a handful of shows while he was sort of kind of bouncing from band to band
2: now he was in a band called
4: myth right
2: yeah yeah
0: they were awesome yeah. i can't tell you how many times we saw them awesome yeah, yeah. let
2: me hear the thunder was on one of yeah. john Gilbert's. yeah it was on the pacific yeah. metal pro- yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. He, so he was in Babylon, which was more of a progressive hard rock thing. Um, really heavy bass player they had, um, but the guy, the bass player, ended up going to school, and it kind of split up. And and so he was kind of, he actually sang for the Mob. Even it's kind of a famous thing. I don't know if Lenny was there. A lot of locals were in 1981, but um, uh, this guy Brett Miller from Lipstick, which was a band also that was on one of Jeff Gilbert's compilations uh brett miller put on some metal shows that were seven or eight bands with tko as like the headliner and culprit and a bunch of different bands played these and um in the first one the the mob guys were friends of his and went way back and stuff to school and things and and um they talked him into letting him on the bill if they could get a singer and they talked jeff Tate to doing it and so he was kind of a wanted man and everybody knew he was a great singer by then And 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 kind of had his pick of whoever and he liked him, but he said he just wasn't interested in doing the cover songs. And so once they wrote, so he joined myth after that, after playing a a few shows with him, handful of shows. And then as he was in myth and playing Lake Hills in a lot of places and, and kind of gathering steam with that, uh, the mob guys were writing original songs, which ended up being the songs on the EP. And so they've often said they've never played, they never played live together, which is sort of true because they weren't Queensryche when they did these mm-hmm. cover show things. But the first actual show they actually did was after they had their independent EP and basically were gonna get signed. So they had a, a rep coming out. So they they were kind of an example that other bands looked at like, okay, you gotta get up and out of the Northwest to get yeah. attention. In their case, okay. the Harrises, their first management, um who we actually interviewed kim harris for the book in quite an extensive um an interesting interview um they had some connections and when when they went on vacation they took the demo tape with them that fall and basically like we're going to drop it off to a few places and kerrang was was one of the main places they wanted That's to get where it I to. them in
2: the armed and ready yeah. section paul Suter, i believe wrote that paul
4: Suter that. wrote yep paul Suter was Old so there was a mine. guy yeah. He said that Paul was in the back and there was a guy in front and the guy in the front took the tape. He said, yeah, we'll check it out, whatever. And he he said, Paul came up and said, what's that? Grabbed it and never let it go (laughs) and just wrote this raving review. And he said they had a couple months over in Europe and stuff, too, and and England or or a month or something like that. And Kim said by the time they got back home, they had like a thousand letters wanting to order this thing.
2: Well, dude, that's and, how influential those early issues of Kerrang! were, because that's how I heard of the band, was through a British magazine. Yeah. I was like, who's Queen's right? And that album, was released. this was not just an independent label. They put that on their own label, 206 yeah. Records, before yeah. I picked up on it. So Kim, that was
4: a really human and cool Diana band. owned um, Easy Street Records in Bellevue, okay. which was kind of the mecca for the metalheads. I'm sure Lenny probably must have went yeah. there a couple oh, times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did as a kid actually too. I talked my dad to driving us over there from Seattle sometimes. So I, and I remember buying a. I remember the first time I went there, I think it was 83. And I, I figured this out. I didn't remember at the time, but I figured it out because they had a live evil poster in the window from Black Sabbath, which came out that year. And they had like a signing thing for the wild dogs there when they had like a picture. And and they had all kinds of imports. So that was a place where he would he started in the 70s at a different record store in the U District importing a lot of stuff. And he was one of the early people for that. And they'd get a lot of German Prague, kraut rock stuff or whatever. And, and so he was vibed into with a lot of the distributor stuff into bringing that stuff in. And, you know, so they had punk and they had all kinds of metal and stuff. And um, and so, in fact, they had something called the Wall of Death which was all like on-the-wall metal records and stuff of all kinds. and um, So that they, Kim had that experience on that end of it, and his wife Diana was, was married to another gentleman, and they were part of the management group that signed Stryker and managed them and a few other bands in the 70s. So she had a lot of connections in the industry. And they had a lady, Mavis Brody, that um, got hired as an A&R person for EMI, who used to be a radio um, station um, uh, person up there for KSW or KZOC, one of the two, and so they brought, so they, you know, called her up and she got the main guy out to come see him, and so they, so they, you know, kind of just knew the industry enough to sort of like, hey, we got to get this under people's radar, you know, um, and and go that route, and so they literally get signed on the basis of opening for zebra in these two hmm. shows back to back portland and seattle in june late june of 1983 and they um and they pretty much everybody was there I, there's you know definitely was a few friends and fans and stuff there even that early on That's said they just blew them show. off the stage <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so they got signed and then all of a sudden they're touring with twisted sister and dio and and all kinds of people and hmm. Um, So a lot of people that were local just kind of like, man, these guys were just like a rocket that shot out of here. And Fifth Angel used a similar kind of mentality. Metal Church used kind of a similar mentality. These guys talked about that. And Lenny, when we talked, you guys kind of, everybody knew that. Like, you've got to kind of get this to somebody in the industry outside of here. Get on a tour. Get a record deal. And then, well, then you can cut the it out.
2: Underground was so huge, not just Kerrang, but even. Yeah. I mean, I remember the Metal Church tape before they released the debut album on their own label, Zero, yeah. which got picked up obviously by Michael Lago at Electra. Uh, but that was kind of similar. And I think they did it, they had an, a song on uh, one of the Metal Blade uh, uh, records. And that was a big thing yeah. was the Metal Blade and Shrapnel. I mean, Shrapnel obviously had. Uh, the um, uh, culprit album they had, as I mentioned, Wild Dogs. They had Fifth Angel before Fifth Angel did something Shrapnel. with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, Shrapnel, uh, and, and Wild Dogs, of course. That's why I thought you know uh, Shrapnel. Uh, did they do some of Crisis too? Shrapnel? I think they had. They uh, were one of the compilations.
4: No, uh, Crisis did their own record. Um, right. Right. Basically, yeah. when. Those guys, I, I I didn't interview those guys, but I did talk to the guitarist, Tim Casey, a little bit uh, for like a half an hour or so. Um, and he said he was just basically like a senior in high school when they did that record. Um, his brother was a couple years older and parents had some money and put it into the record. And the um, recording associates were Wild Dogs and a few others recorded. Um uh, had like some connection with a pressing plan or something where they got them kind of a deal, and um, they got picked up by Metalworks, I think, for the reissue. I want to say was that second pressing of it. The team.
2: Oh, oh, you mean uh, when Metal when Metal Massacre got picked up by Metalworks or? Crisis?
4: No, the the Crisis guys got the reissue on that. I think it was the same label that did. That did come out, yeah,
2: they did August Red Moon, who I worked yeah. with, and they did the first Metal Massacre. And I so think they, yeah, they screwed terribly. everybody over. They either. fucked everyone. What Lloyd Siegel was the uh, name. And Regis yeah, I think C. they Rutgers never paid was, anybody. They and never paid anyone. Over, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, one yeah. of those scam labels. There were a lot of those back then. But Matt, what's uh, what's your uh, uh, view of the? I mean, being obviously uh, uh, being in New York and. Not, being a big Queen's Right fan and because there was so much pre-grunge. It, it, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, grunge really put Seattle on the oh. map, but we're talking, you know, uh, all these bands we mentioned, of course, Metal Church, you know, we're, mm-hmm. were a huge band at the TK were quite big. There was mm-hmm. that band Rail who you mentioned. I remember Rail, seeing them on yeah. MTV. MTV. yeah. Yeah, no, before mean, and they were another independent band, I think, right? The basement the
1: tapes, bands? right? The basement tapes competition. Uh, yeah, Real, one those, yeah. yeah, they won the they first,
4: won. they were the first basement tapes in 83 and they'd already been a band for like 13 years they started in junior high actually like yeah. in 1970 wow. a couple of the guys and um they were one of those bands that kind of built up through the 70s just kind of starting to learn to write and play well and um they played a lot of dances in the 70s there was a lot of high school and college dances that that people would play at and it was all a big circuit and um they Kind of built up to where by the mid 70s, they were basically headlining the Paramount on, you know, whatever night with a couple other local bands and doing pretty much all covers. And that's just something unheard of later on. You'd never play, you know, in the 80s or whatever, you know, is all touring bands and stuff or you had to have a, you know, a major label deal. And they just kind of kept working up till they started getting interest in a record. Um, They actually ended up working with. Um, uh, Mike and Roger Fisher, uh, the heart guitarist um, Mm -hmm. who had a studio together and they ended up recording them. They were supposed to have some deal. I think that kind of fell through with some management and then they ended up just putting it out themselves. Um, And that, that first record did pretty well for them. And, and um, it was uh, repressed by the passport guys. I want to say is the California import one one of yeah, the they did a lot of so Jim. Jim, Jim R- yeah, Jim
2: R- Jim, so yeah that, uh, did like accept and they did a lot of german yeah british bands yeah
4: and i guess their deal rick knots i uh, interviewed the guitarist from rail and he said that the deal with them was and he said he's pretty sure that they sold like two over two hundred thousand copies of that record wow. um because the he he ran into a guy many years later like at nam that worked for him and they had an in-house press or presses so they would press up however many and they never accounted for it so there was a whole lot of problems with the there was
2: a lot of that shit back yeah. yeah but they yeah. said yeah.
4: but he said they had actually did fairly well with it and then they won the mtv thing and i i think with rail they were more of a product of the 70s i mean i remember the first time i heard like um welcome uh, hello all you people was kind of one of their sort of radio songs and i thought it was like van halen meets rush but by the time they won the MTV thing, it was late 83. They got a lot of momentum from it, but I think there were so many other heavier bands kind of coming out, and they Mm -hmm. were more of an old school hard rock thing. And so they kind of went more of like a Night Ranger sort of direction, Mm -hmm. Um, which is what happened. I mean, that was typically the scene, like Portland had sequel, and a couple bands like that were sort of in that sort of lover boy kind of you know aor that's mm-hmm. what you know people wanted to get on the radio so they did kind of the journey or lover boy thing or whatever or you went the other way where you embraced iron maiden and judas priest and these things and mm-hmm. kind of went the heavier direction and yeah, yeah.
0: Rare, rare yeah. Was phenomenal, man I, I i can't tell you how many times i saw them i so i must did. have seen them I, I don't know i bet you 50 times
2: <laughs>
0: yeah i mean uh Those guys, they were the type of band that, you know, we were listening to some of the the, some of the earlier Scorps and UFO and earlier stuff like that, that you you wouldn't even hear it on the radio. But Rail was playing it every time and they nailed it, man. It was so phenomenal. I mean, I was always blown away. It was like you when you went to see Rail, a local band playing. Mostly other band songs. It was like going to a friggin' concert, though. It wasn't just a show, you know, at like, uh, you know, a, a, a high school or something. These guys brought it. And it was great.
4: And they still do. They're still really good. They're I've still, seen them a handful so of high. times in recent years, and every time, they they can do great Rush covers. They can do, you know, and their original stuff's really good too. and scorpions yeah so Astries, like Y&T, yesterday yeah. And today, they've
2: been around since the early 70s and just
4: never that's broke up a, I never really
2: got paid their dues from there that's
4: actually a pretty, pretty good comparison because they kind of come out of that same sort of school of right. of influence as ynt i think uh you know obviously ynt goes back to like 73 74 so they've right. been around but but yeah it was just you know fifth angel was one of those where James Byrd went to LA. He told me, you know, we did an interview. I did an interview with him. And also um, one of my co-writers, Jim Sutton did an interview with Ed Archer. And so we had a couple of the guys in the band for fifth angel. And um, James said he'd went down to LA and cooked up with, or, you know, California. I'm, I'm not sure if he hooked up with, with Mike Barney in LA or San Francisco to be honest, but Varney, you know, always was looking for the guitar hero guys and he was looking to the Northwest as you said, with, with, you know, having wild dogs and culprit and people like that on the records. And he said, if you put together a band, I'll put out your record. And so he went back with a mission in mind that, you know, I'm going to get a singer. He said it was very influenced by the Queens, right guys and what they did and said, you know, we're going to put this together. And He grabbed some guys from three guys from a band called Ridge who'd won a, a the first battle of the bands in 79, um, over the other band tyrant who was the runner-up which featured adam brenner adam bomb brenner gary thompson and jeff tate on vocals
3: oh. and
4: yeah and so even though um tyrant was pretty popular with the crowds um the guys told me that and did a lot of you know they did pat travers judas priest uh, rush uh a bunch of van halen you know and then had like one or two originals ridge had some originals but also did um some metal stuff and some like cheap trick and other things that sort of were real popular with the crowd and and they ended up winning it and um those three guys were ed that i mentioned before um ken mary and ted pilot um and so um james grabbed those guys and they actually they didn't have a bass player on the record either interestingly enough it's it's um James doing the bass parts, and Randy Hansen, the guitars. Wow. And, um, and the guy, they put the picture on the cover, which is kind of funny, of, of the original shrapnel one, Kenny Kenny K, I think was his name, was just a, he was, he was in a couple battle bands, but he was mainly Randy's guitar tech guy. And so they just plugged him into the picture as like a, so that's kind of a funny story. But they said they had like five, I think five demo songs that they'd sent mike and he gave them the money to record more and then they flushed out the record and um you know of course they got signed same kind of thing is in, in their case they had an indie too um and and it got the attention of the majors and um so we you know we had a lot you of that it was a lot of the shrapnel. what's that they did an indie before they
2: signed with shrapnel or?
4: no no they yeah. just had a demo tape that kind of know. got them signed the the indie was the shrapnel record Roger.
2: Now yeah. we gotta talk Randy Hansen because he was one of the yeah, first guys. Yeah. I saw him in seventy nine. I think my second or third concert, my uh saw my the Rainbow show, didn't it. you? Well, I saw him at Rainbow and he yeah. opened up after Blackmore. That was uh he was still doing the Hendrix then. That was yeah, seventy nine yeah. we were down to earth tour. And that the the day before Blackmore didn't want to be, uh, uh, didn't want Randy to open the show. He didn't want to get blown away by Randy Hansen. So like <laughs> he said, like the day
3: before he goes, you're
2: going on after me. And the opening band, <laughs> believe it or not, was John Cougar. Whoa, wow. oh, Yeah, John Cougar just started out. And this was a wow. rainbow on the Down to Earth tour. But I saw Randy Hansen prior at the Santa Monica Civic doing the Hendrix thing and just blew yeah. me away. And then I saw him all the time after. Then he did the solo thing in '80 which was a great record he put on. I was yeah. on Capitol Capital Records, and uh, uh, that was a fantastic band. I, I, I love Jeff, that record. Jeff Pilsen on bass. and uh,
4: No, actually, on the first, on that self-titled record where he tried to do his own material, it's Scott Rosberg playing oh, bass and okay. singing. Okay.
2: Okay. And
3: You're a guy, right.
4: Charles Tapp, on drums. Yeah, um, uh, Pilsen plays on that live one he did on shrapnel. Oh, that's right, late. the
2: Hendrix. Yeah, and the Ken Astral. Mary on drums, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. right, right. But he was, he was always... Uh, and of course, he, Hendricks was a Seattle guy, which a lot of people forget yeah. that, you know, yeah. he was from, he was the original Seattle dude, yeah. Yeah, it, Jimmy
4: left pretty early on, but because yeah. he, you know, came back and played a lot of times, and, you know, because he's from there, Seattle definitely still claims him as their own, even yeah. though he didn't care I much for him at the left, but, <laughs> but uh but yeah, you no, know, Hanson's a real interesting story too, is that he came out of a fifties a throwback band called kid Cadillac and the cruisers. Um, there was a lot of in the early, of course, in the seventies, we had happy days and American graffiti and there was, you know, the 20 year sort of thing that they say where you kind of the retro and that generation was still had grown up in the fifties. So, you know, you still had a lot of love for that old rock and, so they, there was a few of those bands. The Sonics guys kind of split up, and a couple of those guys were in Junior Cadillac. And a lot of those bands played all the, you know, the Parkers, uh, Aquarius, a lot of these places, um, and toured around a lot. And he and the other two guys from the first, um, the, the first Randy Hansen, Jimi Hendrix lineup thing that he did were in that band, and they started doing the Hendrix thing, and then it ended up, being really popular and they broke off to do their own trio thing and, and uh yeah i always hendrix, felt bad yeah. for him because a solo record is great but people yeah. just wanted to hear him do hendrix Hendrix, yeah. So. <laughs> the
2: production was a little funky it wasn't it was kind of uh, i mean it, it's a lot of different genres you know a little bit funky yeah. and different stuff with with the hard rock melody
0: wasn't there a song called like champagne and cocaine or yeah, something like that? i love that, yeah, that,
2: that, that <laughs> Well, that's one of my. I gotta. I gotta look that up again. I don't know if that ever came out on CD. I think actually, uh, Rock Candy's Candy, it. yeah, yeah Derek yeah. Oliver put it. Yeah, I, there, I gotta talk is. to Derek. I gotta get that on CD because I, w-
4: I want to cool. pick it up and see if it sounds better because that production is a little muddy. Yeah, there. it was a little. Uh, like,
2: was Herbie Hancock the deep release, or Somebody? No, uh, the other guy, the bass player, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, Matt. Uh, get in on this conversation. <laughs> <You gotta laughs> you <gotta watch> <laughs>
1: well, no, what, I, what, what I'm interested in, obviously, is, you know, we're talking about, you know, obviously the eighties, the but when did, you know, and I guess I can, you know, angle it to either James or uh, Lenny. I mean, when did you guys start realizing that, you know, metal was becoming a dirty word in the area and it was all now grunge? Uh, like When, when did that, that start to really sort of, Seep into the scene where metal was really starting to kind of go to the wayside, and here came this massive grunge man because this is something obviously that you know affected the whole metal, uh, you know, st- just the whole metal genre. Yet here it is happening in your guys' backyard, which might must have made it even like you know, crazier, obviously. Um, talk a bit about that, about how that was once you know, grunge came along.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I kind of remember as it, it was happening a little bit, but I think. I think more of what happened was grunge just became so much more uh, of a focus and 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 so much more popular that, you know, metal didn't really go away. It just kind of be suddenly now that was becoming the more of the underground.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
0: you know, I, I get it, I guess. But, um, you know, of course, I'm a metal guy. But, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when Jeff Loomis and I were sitting in, in a car because, you know, Loomis from uh, Nevermore he was in sanctuary for a really short time. It was only about six months, but okay. he originally came out to replace uh, my cousin, and um, you know we were playing for you know six months together. So and we're cruising along, and I remember hearing Nirvana for the first time, and they they were kind of they were playing it they were playing it a lot, but I remember they played uh, "Come as You Are" and "Smells Like Keen Spirit," and both of us just looked at each other and we like. Yeah, there's something happening here. There's, there's a mm-hmm. <laughs> thing coming, you know, and, I mean, so from Were, there, they, were
2: it, they big it, in well, Seattle before? Uh, like, no. Obviously, that was the Nevermind, the, the Bleach record and all that. They weren't like a big thing in Seattle. No. You know what, you know?
0: it, it kind of it, – it was underground, and, I mean, I, I actually like both those records, but you could tell. I mean, obviously – there was a big shift when Nevermind came out. I mean, it was um, uh, you know, almost seemed deliberate, it, you know, as far as their sound and everything. But I mean, it, I, you know, I remember hearing about Nirvana and stuff like that. But it seemed like it was just kind of a, a grassroots thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It hadn't really blown up, and then right around that time, you know, of course. Pearl Dam and Mother Love Bone and all that stuff was starting to come out. And and same with Alice and Chains, but you know, I, I remember when we would hang out with Alice and Chains and and we were actually a bigger band than they were. And then like, you know, suddenly overnight they're selling millions of records, you know. So uh-huh. <laughs> that's how it was for
2: that scene. Yeah. It just there was
0: a there was
4: really so a lot of this I feel really started with the crossover stuff, and you could okay. go way back because you know it, it was interesting was portland seattle had bands that did that very early on i mean you could go back to even the, like late
3: like
4: punk. 70s sort of thing and you had mm-hmm. you know fred cole of dead moon's early bands like king b which was kind of a crossover type of thing as far as the garage punk and and a little bit of hard rock of the 70s in there and, mm-hmm. and you know tko had kind of a you know elements a couple That's of the guys sound, the singer but... yeah they came from like a glam review with uh, like a drag review like sort of like the coquettes they had the z wiz kids up there and these guys opened up for alice cooper and new york dolls and stuff in like 72 74 range and they were basically kind of a performance troupe that got a, you know towards the end a band in there to be sort of a glam band and those guys came out of love and bowie and t-rex and alice cooper and things like that and Sincel always had kind of a punky street voice kind of thing going on. There was sort of right. this crossover. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, sort of a David Johansson type of thing. Yeah, and both yeah. of those guys actually, Sincel said, were pretty influenced by Eric Burton of uh, the Animals. And, hmm. um, you know, sort of a lost thing of the deeper voice style. And you would add, after TKO, their influence was so big on a lot of Seattle guys that were coming up that were younger, like the Overlord guys or, or the guys from Shadow, which was Mike McCready's band from Pearl Jam, you know, out of high school with his friends and, and Chris and Rick Friel and those guys. And, and those guys had very punky singers, like snotty kind of, you know, a lot of influence of like Angel City and early Alice Cooper and, you know, and this kind of stuff, Aerosmith and things like that. And, They just kind of, but they had more metal music, hard rock metal. So they, but they weren't very accepted by the crowds. They sort of had some crossover. It wasn't really until they opened up Gorilla Gardens, which was kind of now, of course, famous that this was old theater in Seattle, that they had two different rooms. It was like an old porno theater or something. And they had two different um, movie rooms. And close to size. And when it started out, one was supposed to be the punk bands, and one was going to be the the, the metal bands. But it always ended up co And you know, Mace and Metal Church played there, and Eric and the Melvins and Green River and Shadow, and all these different bands just coalesced nice. and started getting along a little bit. There'd be some fights and stuff people talked about, but but a lot of that impetus, Soundgarden was just coming out eight, late '84 early 85 and they started kind of doing their thing uh, malfunction which was andrew wood from mother love bones you know band before that which was i mean they were almost like kiss on acid there was a trio really heavy kind of metal-ish almost crossover but yet they were really glammed with all this makeup and weird costumes and kind of crazy stuff and and you know so there was just there was elements of that there was uh, sort of the goth thing kind of happening with some of that with metal and different different mm-hmm. you know and, and it, it coincided with a lot of the thrash metal hardcore punk crossover stuff and right. that happened in portland a lot too that's when i started going,
1: the I started going band to, like that yeah,
4: yeah i started going to club shows in in the like the fall of 86 summer fall of 86 kind of range and i started seeing like i had some friends bands that um you know you are a year my age or a year or two older kind of thing they were starting to open up for bigger bands or whatever in town and i started you know before that i was just going to see ozzy or scorpions or kiss or whatever and and that was when i started seeing hey stuff's happening in town and you know i saw like corrosion and conformity with poison idea and you know dri with accused and all this stuff was kind of happening and you had the thrash stuff and, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I saw Megadeth with Sanctuary and I saw, you know, just all these different bands coming through and, and there was, you know, Wehrmacht was another Portland band that was really cool. Kind of a speed metal, hardcore crossover thing. And Metal Church was like an earlier, uh, you know, thing. Metal Church was really the one in Seattle that kind of was sort of the, one of the first ones, them and Mace where they, you know, and Kurt, Goes back to being in a punk band in the 70s, The Lude, Mm -hmm. and they moved to San Francisco. And then once he quit, he kind of started putting together the first incarnations of Metal Church, which didn't really stick. But um, they had a house or apartment that they called the Church of Metal in San Francisco. That's
2: right. Kurt Vandenhoek. Well, a lot of people talk of them about being a San Francisco band because they kind of formed in San Francisco. They they uh, did in In 1981. Yeah.
4: They were doing metal um demos with um uh the guy who went on to be the singer of griffin okay, um, right. they had a couple guys um aaron zimple and another guy that were later in um, anvil chorus okay, before yeah. that um and you, you know kurt ended up going back home and just kind of getting a couple buddies from school and things and just started auditioning people till he kind of found the right mix and Rocky
2: Quintana tried getting Lars in that band, but Lars wasn't quite Yeah, I
4: guess he, he didn't
0: play, play drums.
2: Him. Kurt it's no, that, <laughs> sort of a myth that I, I asked for. Well, Kirk he and, said he played drums. He was just a very I, I knew <laughs> Lars in Newport Beach, and he was yeah. a very rough, I mean, he just started playing drums. And ron's like hey you forgot. but he was such a metal head he knew everyone and yeah he was such a metal he guy and could he, talk he, his, he
0: could hang out talk
2: his way into anything so, Oh yeah you That's know true. they tried like auditioning him. He's like dude you can't <laughs> he's <laughs> like I'm, i or i guess Lars never like really just wasn't ready to you know at that time but he got yeah, asked, real quick
4: i asked yeah. kurt about that if he thought there was any did like... he actually audition
2: for him or no like, he did said... he never showed right he kurt... just uh, they t-
4: Kurt just said he'd hang out, you know, yeah, he yeah, said, yeah. he said, Lars lived, you know, when they first came over from Denmark, they were in San Francisco for a f- couple few months. And he said, oh. Lars had a lot of great record collection and already, and, and they just kind of hung out and talk music and stuff. But he, he said he didn't have any drums at that point. He didn't have a yeah, kid, yeah. or he didn't know about it. At, right. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, they were, they were sort of those one, one of those bands that, a, a few different guys talked about sort of the sea change after Metal Church and how much heavier and aggressive and different that was. It, it, before that, and, and Matt from Wild Dogs, a few people talked about kind of the parting of, of the sea where before that it was all metal. And, yeah. you know, when, when the new Ooh. album was coming out.
2: Metal Troop you know. was so influential. I mean, they, they really discovered Terry Date, right? That's, they got Terry great yeah. start. Um, and they were like, you know, one of the original, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of the, you know, I mean, they go along with, you know, the, the anvil, the riot, Exciter, the Canadian exciter. I mean, they were like one of those original, yeah. you know, and real they, heavy kind of, not really thrash, have... but borderline thrash.
4: They had elements of th- of speed metal, I guess you would call sure. it at that time. The it was song sure and the, rip- the ripping in yeah. there. Oh, song.
1: yeah. Oh, my God. yeah. And I yeah.
4: think that was a lot. You know, Kurt talked about um the influence of punk, but he didn't he kind of felt that that sort of kind of he got kind of bored with it, basically, was how he told it. Yeah, you know, like because in Lude was a typical sort of Ramon Sex Pistols kind of influence band. And which was cool for what it was, but he said it just wasn't very challenging and he wanted to do more complex stuff and sure. and metal lent that more, the playing ability. I mean, that's an old joke we used to say anyway, when I was growing up would be like, when you started to have that crossover stuff with like DRI or whoever, it's like, you know, you know crossovers when they the punk guys start to learn to play their instruments.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, I'm sure that'll. That's really true. It's true though. Yeah,
1: it's true. Yeah.
4: Uh, there's not a lot of solos in punk. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. no. if you look at the Sex Pistols record, that's kind of a really good hard rock record. old yeah. Orange well, up up do. County. I yeah.
2: knew all, all these punk bands I went to school with them, and they're out playing the clubs after they got together in a couple of weeks and just learned a few chords. Yeah. Basically, like, you play guitar and you, know, you play work. bass. Yeah. 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 You know and then it all yeah. kind of started to cross over a bit when metal started getting big and you saw the la bands you know bad religion uh, tsol yeah. and, and even back from back east corrosion they were all going metal when you know it was you know crossing over to that was, pretty awesome. was yeah but uh, yeah. but they became pretty good pretty quick but uh, yeah yeah so as far as sanctuary dave uh, this was uh, taking over a world i mean uh uh a uh, warrel uh when uh, you know obviously after he passed and all it was a uh, uh was that a hard thing to do to to get the sanctuary uh back together again and uh continue on how did that work out
0: yeah i mean it was a you know it's kind of a difficult thing of course um you know we we had a tour planned when when he passed away and we decided to, you know, it was a, it was about four months after he passed away, but we decided to continue on with that, you know, with Joseph here. Um, I was put in touch with Joseph by John Schaefer of Iced Earth, and um, you know, we hit it off. And um, Joseph was, I mean, he, he could sing in that, he could pull off the world stuff, you know, which isn't always that easy, you know, the the early oh, yeah. stuff. Sure. Um, and, you know, we hit it off. So um, we wanted to do at least, uh, you know, keep our commitment for that tour. And then, it, you know, it it, it really – when we played, the vibe and the um, experience that I saw people having, I, I felt like a lot of people really embraced it, you know. Um, you know, we got to do some things that we, we – we're having trouble doing, um, cause you know, world was having a little bit of a hard time at the end. He was, his health was failing a little bit, you know, and he, he always went out there and, and, and did it, did, did his best. I mean, that's who he was, but you know, um, it was harder, you know? And, um, so I, I think that, you know, that tour in 2018 that we did, a lot of people heard songs that we hadn't done in a long time, you know, when it was kind of a, all a, you know, it was all in tribute to World, but there was there was something that happened. <laughs> <laughs> nice, <laughs> and, in yeah. honor of Sanctuary yeah. guys here. Yeah. Nice. And you know, I I just feel like it it made a connection with a lot of people. I saw the looks on people's faces. You know, when when we were playing battle and and people were kind of, I think that they were more than pleasantly surprised. You know, and it just there was a connection, and and so you know we. We felt like it—it it was, it was worth continuing on, you know. And we're, you know, uh, trying to do this with the utmost respect and everything as well, you know. It's but it's always hard when it's something like this, you know. Sure. Uh, it's—I uh, get it from both sides, really. You know, it's hard for the band and it's hard for the fans. Um, well, Joseph, uh,
2: I, I, you seem obviously a few years younger. Uh were did yeah. you were you familiar with uh a sanctuary growing up or was it or, yeah. or I could be wrong. Uh, or were you you seem like you grew, grew up kind of more in the nineties grunger or was, was uh were you into the eighties band, you know, sanctuary and all that
5: Uh yeah, I mean I was honestly, I was a big Queenswich fan when I was growing up. Um I, I mean I, there's no way that I would have ended up being able to sing some of the stuff I I you know eventually learned how to sing if I didn't, if I wasn't a fan of that sort of stuff, you know, like there's a big disconnect between the kind of stuff that I say that and Chains and, you know, Soundgarden between like the, the clean or falsetto stuff of the metal. Right. Like it's just different. Um, yeah. I actually, I met Lenny uh, on that year, of the Sunday tour. I met those guys, uh, I uh, we were out in a show in Las Vegas when they were coming through, and uh, yeah, I knew I I didn't know the entire catalog. Obviously, knew Battle Angels and uh, uh, Future Tense, and uh, I had heard the new record because uh, my other band we used Zeus for our record, and we picked him because I had heard the new Sanctuary record. And the new uh well, that's not, not the new right The first one they did with the tour, I think, uh, right. that had a uh, bulletproof on it. Yeah.
3: Right.
5: Yeah. So we're like, man, this sounds really good. So we picked, we picked Zeus just from hearing the Queensrÿch record. Really. Awesome.
1: Yeah. And what's going on with? I know you guys were supposed to have a, a new album coming out, right? Twenty twenty. Is that just put off because of the the pandemic, or you guys still working on that? Was a Transmutation? I think it's supposed to be called.
0: Yeah, well, that's yeah. the working title, and you know we're working <laughs> on it. It's um, we have a whiteboard over there. We're yeah, over <laughs> <Okay>. you can't <laughs> you can see it there. You can't Very see cool. it. on the title. But, uh, <laughs> there. <Nice>. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, we're just we're taking our time. We're trying to make sure okay. that it's, it's all it's all there. It's all dialed in, and you know, I people always hold you down to schedules, and we always tell you know, uh, ah, you know, it's gonna be here. It's gonna be this date or whatever, but. We're hoping for 2021. I, I think, of course, you know, it's not going to be in 2020 because sure, but um, I, I think that there's a really good chance that we will record it in 2021. And depending upon Mm -hmm. scheduling and everything,
5: you know, hopefully it'll be
0: out in 2021. If not, it would be early 2022.
5: Right, probably close to that. I think we'll be recording in the summer before we head out on the road. Yeah, and then, uh, you know let the label do their thing. We have, you know,
0: sure. as of now, we, we have a tour planned in um, September of 2021. I mean, as, if, as long as everything goes okay with the whole COVID mm-hmm. thing, um, yeah. we're, we're planning, a, we have a tour for Europe and, you know, hopefully a, a few other things as well. Um, but, you know, before September, I'm not sure if there's, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, um, we were planning some yeah. stuff for the U.S. Um, in April, but I nobody knows you know and unfortunately
1: yeah
5: yeah Yeah. we it's been rough i mean like it's a new writing relationship you know like lenny and world had written for decades you Mm -hmm. know they they familiar with each other so we're trying to establish that and then it was like oh like you want to go out and do refuge denied so they're like we tried to do a thing where we booked some place to hang out in germany and write and it's just you you get so busy on the road, it just doesn't work out, you know. Sure, it's not like we're Metallica and we have people catering for us, yeah. Uh, yeah, we've been consistently making slow and steady progress, and you know, we're not you trying know, to I look
2: forward to it. I, I mean, Sanctuary, yeah. uh, you know, I, I love never more to it. Were you ever in Never? Uh, Nevermore Lenny did you do anything with Nevermore or no No I thought you helped them produce that I one.
0: well you know what I did later on after after the band broke up and and Nevermore was still continuing on, they um they came down and, and I recorded a demo in, in the studio that I had you know so I I was doing a lot of Seattle bands um you know a lot of just demo stuff really you know mm-hmm. um I did a band choke and um uh, a couple other bands and mm-hmm. and uh nevermore came in and we did like four songs cool That's
2: well matt up. you think we should uh wind it down here we're we're about a little about over hour hour 15 in. sure uh, one artist i want to talk about uh i you know it's funny because you know a lot of the because again seattle was growing up and you know get collecting demos and like i said reading about you know in kerrang and all these uh different magazines and you know shrapnel and and metal blade and and all the stuff that was releasing stuff, uh, there was a big, big buzz on a lot of these Seattle bands, you know, way prior to the, the, the grunge movement. It was like, you know, you had LA, you had New York, you had, you know, a San Francisco Bay Area, you know, and this we're talking pre-thrash, you know. And then you had Seattle, which was really a, you know, but one one artist I'm not talking about is Adam Baum, who got a huge. I remember Geffen signed them. I actually saw him open for. Metallica and Armored Saint at the Hollywood Palladium <laughs> wow. on the Ride the Lightning tour. They were throwing them on these bills, but I remember he got like a real big deal and it was like a big buzz. And it was, uh, what's his story with Adam? I don't know if 70s. he told it was so around for was a while,
3: right? Since the yeah, 70s,
4: yeah, Adam bomb is, that, is Adam, Adam, Adam Brenner, right? Adam Brenner, yeah, Adam well, yeah, I interviewed him for the book. Um, I think he's. He was still in New York for quite a while, and I, I think he moved. I can't remember what the deal was there, but um, he came back and played um, 2015 maybe was when I saw him and interviewed him, something, to, something like that, and he and Scott Earl from Culprit was in his band, okay. and then a younger guy on drums, and they did a lot of the Atom Bomb catalog and some covers and things, and then they did... Uh, Gary Thompson got up and played a couple songs with him on drums, and they did a couple TKO songs and and Rock Bottom from UFO, and they had um, John Duvall came up and played a couple songs with him from Culprit, and so that was a lot of fun. And I talked to him for I don't know about half an hour, forty five minutes. He didn't get we didn't really get into the Atom Bomb stuff because he f- he formed that after he left down in like L.A. Um, okay. and then went to new york and became kind of a new york thing but um
2: but yeah yeah
4: yeah, so he kind of went through a couple different incarnations they recorded that first he got signed to geffen for i don't know what the deal was as far as you know how big of a deal but um had some funny stuff around that he's actually got a book he kind of kind of screwed himself on that one and he admitted to that fully but um wrecked his uh he had lieber krebs as management aerosmith managers and uh he wrecked one of the guys sports car and then slept with let's just say a famous band person's wife or girlfriend or something.
3: and and so he
4: got dropped so they never really pushed that record they kind of had a little promotional buzz around it and then i think they dropped him and so kind of got in some trouble around that one but that's a really good record actually so
0: I gotta ask you a question about it because so when when I was a kid and you know we were learning you know, coming up with guitar players and everything, he was kind of a legend here. And their story was that he set up um, his amps at the Edgewater next to Eddie Van Halen's room when they came down, and he, he played you know, like Eruption or something like that. And then he ended up meeting Eddie. Is that a true story?
4: Yeah, he actually he followed him around, so he was a huge fan of van halen from like day one he got to go see him on the sabbath tour when they opened as a few um people in different bands i talked to it had, had first seen him and he in 79 i think he said when it was for the van halen 2 tour um he got into the he he there, so there was a couple girls that um one of them ended up marrying john bauer i think later on or something like that he said but um a couple hot ladies that basically got him connected up into, they were working for Albatross or, or John Bauer, something like that, double T. And, um, so they were helping with the tour sort of stuff in locally and they knew where they were. And so he got into the hotel where they were staying at. And I think you're right. I think it was the Edgewater, if I remember right. And, uh, yeah, he got to hang out with him quite a bit. He said, Ed kind of, um, showed him a few different licks and tricks and things and he just kind of worshipped him and he was like 14 years old or something at the time he's just a prodigy it yeah. just he he his his family owned Brenner brothers bakeries which were all around at the time and were kind of famous and um so they had a little bit of money and he kind of got some guitars when he wanted and this sort of thing he admitted to kind of being a little bit of a spoiled brat and he was pretty fun to talk to and He um he still does a lot of that stuff. I mean he still has a lot of that sort of. He's almost like Johnny Thunders playing Van Halen or something. It's just he's definitely got an interesting stage
0: presence and and sort of persona.
3: Yeah,
0: I saw TKO many times and he always blew me away, man. I just he was he was a very odd, interesting guy, but there was something really cool about him in the way he played. Yeah,
4: he's kind of a he's definitely kind of a rock star. So he was an interesting guy to talk to. Of course, I just fo- focused more on Tyrant and TKO with him as right. he left and kind of has done other stuff. And uh, But yeah, definitely an interesting guy. And he's got a little bio he wrote himself that's out there, I guess, which is pretty interesting. I read some of it. Um, James Tolan had a copy of it. And, um, but yeah, I, so one thing I was going to tell you guys on here, you got the first exclusive because I've not said this to anybody. In fact, I just did an interview with, Kevin from KISW, and I kind of teased him a little bit, but Bob already knows about this next book we're working on as he's kind enough to let us use some quotes from some interviews he did with the guys. But um, as of throughout this COVID thing with all the shutdown and and quarantine stuff, I managed to get 80,000 words done on a bio <laughs> on nice. Um Surprisingly, they have no book out on them. So yeah. I, you know, why not? That's what we did with rusted metal. So why not this? And, um, we had a lot of different people. We interviewed a lot of people that we were, we knew, um, that were, um, willing to let us use quotes from the interviews and things over the years. And so we got a lot of great material in there. And, um, at this point, we're, we're looking to have this out next year, which will kind of coincide with their 40th anniversary of the first time Jeff sang with them as the mob. So, um, very so cool. yeah, so that's uh, that's your first exclusive. Is we got a, a bio on Queens Reich, and we we're still sort of up in the air about the title, so I won't say that just yet. But but that should be pretty interesting. Um, I got twenty four chapters done on it basically already. Wow.
0: So oh wow, that's so, so. yeah. I got well, a quick have... like a one minute okay. story. It's really it's, so oh, no. when when Sanctuary first <laughs> started, in and Jeff was in Myth. Um, you know, we had one of those uh, uh, ads in the rocket and we were looking for a singer and I knew who Jeff Tate was because I saw a myth many times, you know, and this was in the very early stages of Sanctuary. It was just me and my cousin, you know, and we we had an ad out and I came home one night after rehearsal and there was a note on, on the board that said Jeff Tate called. I never
3: called.
0: I mean, I love the guy, but I mean, we were just, you know, we were still a baby band. It wouldn't have worked out.
3: But,
0: uh. Right. Wow. Uh, well, cool.
2: Cool. I before mean, you throw up some contact info, I got to ask about the mentors. We can't end this without the mentor. Oh. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do, do see, guy, right?
0: yeah,
4: yeah. yeah, I did put a bio in there for the mentors because they, they actually went <laughs> yeah. to Roosevelt High School, all wow. three of the original, Steve and and, and Ho. They were all, okay. Yeah, all three of the original three guys wow. um, went to Roosevelt High where Duff McKagan went um, from Guns N' Roses where oh, sure. uh, the Shadow Guys, four of the Shadow Guys went. A lot of punk guys went there, um, and yeah, they started out. Um, Elton started out backing up a band called the Tupperwares in the early punk scene, which became the Screamers later on in San Francisco. is a, a fairly mm-hmm. um, iconic or legendary punk band now, as far as that goes. But um, but yeah, they were. Um, Kind of vilified, I think. I, I actually get, saw those guys in Portland at the Satyricon w- one time with Saint Vitus and a couple other bands. It was an oh, amazing wow. show, but they were always fun. I think they were metal enough to kind of include them in the book, as they were always oh, they were yeah. offensive enough to be in the punk scene and more maybe more accepted there. But they always, to me, felt a little more like kind of rudimentary metal stuff as far as their yeah. music. But yeah. I, I did, and they always been. They always came back through the northwest and played like every year. They'd yeah, play they play shows. It's they yeah. were the
5: unpolished war. That's what they were. <laughs> they, <did laughs> a, they, they, they kind, kind the of were sort ball. of that
0: before
2: then. But. Yeah, they were yeah. one of the originators, man. I think yeah. Yeah, they were yeah they I feel like
0: you couldn't even do that nowadays. I don't know. Oh, oh, yeah. said, Dude, no way. No way. They're True,
4: still yeah.
2: around. <laughs> Steve, yeah.
0: Roy,
4: and. Uh, I think that the original drummer is still, or not original drummer, the, or, the original drummer, or the original guitarist yeah. and, and original bassist are still, They're still doing, doing it, it. Yeah, are back doing it, at least. So, uh. yeah. oh,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> All right, well, Matt, anything else before we end? No,
1: I just want to so say, you know, there's so many uh, you know, great interviews, too, you had in there, James. Obviously, the one with Lenny was great, too. His story about uh, in Ireland and the spitball. That's yeah. pretty <laughs> hilarious, <laughs> uh, and of course, yeah. and, and like you alluded to before, James, you know the definitely the the uh, the Kim Harris one. I thought was a really awesome interview, and just to to uh, see how Queensryke really how, how the, the beginnings you know uh, of them and how they really started taking off, and like you said, the plan they had for them and everything it was just that was a phenomenal. Yeah. Was. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I yeah.
4: think those they it it really was one of those things, and it it you know kim said that definitely it was really fun sitting and talking with him and he was really honest and forthright and it was really interesting to see how much they sort of like okay if we're going to do this we're going to have a plan we're going to build this and and um and you know things that he said like jeff was very serious about it to start with you know that he he was he was a couple years older than the guys you Mm -hmm. know three four years older kind of thing and and so I think he'd been through more bands and kind of had more experience. It was like, okay, we're going to do this. How much is it going to pay this sort of thing? And he's just more serious about it. But it's really kind of interesting to see how that, that whole situation evolved. And, and, um, you know, and there was, there was so, you know, it's the interesting thing is there was a lot of bands that did get some sort of record deal um, that, you know, whether an indie label or a major label that, that still remember, you know, panic mm. had a couple great records sure. on on metal blade and you know mm-hmm. especially that first one is really awesome and forced entry guys you know entry, had couple yeah, records played, on yeah. combat mm-hmm. and got around quite really. a bit they're a great
3: um, band
1: yeah
4: yeah we did a, a reissue of air apparent which was um sort of the air to queen's reich the next air you might well, they're say a
2: german guy in the band right a german drummer or because i uh, uh, uh
4: was that no Alex?
2: They had, um, Germany that was in that. Yeah.
4: Category. They had, um, Klaus was, was good. the, Kloss, I think
2: they, um, they kind uh, of
4: pulled right. a mutiny. You'll see. in okay. if you read the interview with Terry Gore that I did, it was kind of the, he was the founder and kind of main songwriter guitars. Right. Um, the other guys sort of did a little bit of a mutiny on him and tried to replace him and it didn't work out so well, which, which is yeah. unfortunate because they got signed to, to metal blade who had a co-deal code with Capital, And so they had major label, distribution and the whole thing just kind of fell apart and right. that sort of situation you take a core key member out of something everything you know sometimes yeah. that's so easy to replace people so i
0: mean we all, we all heard about that whole that whole kind of lawsuit thing or yeah with that you know what i mean that's kind of yeah. it's yeah well known yeah
4: yeah we're actually doing a reissue of their second record too we really like working with terry and those guys and and the first one did really well. In fact, we're, we basically just have like two or three copies of that left and it's sold out. So it's like our first complete final right. sellout of, of 500 copies. And and the second one um, is going to be kind of a uh, the way that it was originally supposed to be before that whole coup kind of happened, and um, which was going to be a much heavier record than what came out. And um, so that should be pretty interesting for people. It'd be kind of an, an- anniversary yeah, sort of
1: edition Maybe. so <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> well i think that's great what you're doing Thank with you for you. sending
2: what? me all these records I yeah to, uh, promote. So, this was the uh great compilation record with a lot of the uh i don't know if you can see these all on so the camera you, or
1: you're kind of doing like a lot of stuff i think james is crazy it reminds me of, like what, what Die bomb records is doing too putting out a lot of these yeah yeah right? it's pretty, pretty cool similar. yeah we, i like we, um, i really like what you're doing yeah with the yeah. label
4: the books actually started first and i you know bob's holding up some of our releases for northwest metalworks um mm-hmm. you know brian and i started the book and we had a couple of the guys you know roger from duke cruella roger de carlos a friend you know and i went back to seeing those guys as a teenager and he he was one of the first couple people i interviewed as well as mark from whiskey stick which was an astoria band that was from the 70s Mm-hmm. And they were a very deep purple influence band. It's kind of sort of like Deep Purple meets Boston type of sound with his vocals, but very Hammond-driven guitar, heavy trade-off stuff. And and um, they had a couple comp tracks, and they had one on a local compilation for Kjuin, and then they had a, a track on that first um, uh, US metal compilation from Shrapnel. Mm-hmm. And they were they had interest from a couple major labels and they had management um, from Butch Stone, the Crocus um and black oak arkansas manager and they just didn't they didn't you know they failed the auditions and butch was still willing to manage them but they wow. just ended up kind of falling apart and, um they had some they had a home studio and recorded a whole bunch of really great like i said very heavy deep purple influencers, little elements that kind of remind me of rainbow here and there a little bit you know or uriah heat that sort of thing and yeah. and that was one of the guys that said they were just kind of looking for somebody interested in putting this stuff out roger was interested in reissuing he had a couple records on a german label um uh shark records was kind of the main thing for the guy that did wehrmacht and a bunch of other they had um like doro pesch was at a record and Sepultura and stuff they they distributed over there or whatever but but, yeah, so we just kind of like, mm, you know, th- we always kind of thought about doing something like this. And we we're, we love vinyl and always have and, you know, collectors for a I long know. time and stuff. And yeah. um, th- so the record label actually started before the book ever came out. We, we launched the first okay. air record, the Air Apparent one, in uh, early 2016. And we've done seven releases. We've got a couple more, as, as I mentioned, Slaughterhouse-Five and Air Apparent. We've got a couple records coming out from those guys this next year. And um just kind of funny how it happened you know the whole time i was working on this book we were doing these records and we we brought back the metal fest with you know brett miller gave us permission to kind of use the name and his blessing and we had like tko and q5 and coven and cruella and glacier and you know all these different bands on there and it, it was really great we did a couple of those and we have intention to do so another bands are still
2: still together performing huh
4: a lot of them were back together some did reunions around the record releases or the shows kind of thing the cruella guys reformed with three of the original guys and played a handful of shows they even opened up for like ynt and grim reaper and stuff and q5's been kind of gunning for a while and a few years now they got back together they had a brand new record a couple few years back and um yeah so a lot of the, you know tko did some reunion stuff around us putting out this round two thing and they played our thing and um we had a lot of great bands we had a couple of the overlord guys got up together and did stuff with the palooka guys and we had a uh, wild dogs matt put together a lineup he'd taken out to germany with two other guys from a couple portland metal bands and
2: yeah, that was great. You remember? Uh, I, I remember that they, they had a big buzz with Doctor Mastermind, which was kind of a yeah. side project, which had Kurt James who yeah. replaced Ingbe in Steeler, fantastic in Steeler, yeah. guitar part. Of yeah. course, Dean Castanova on drums. Yeah, and it was like a kind of like a super group. Never really he, did anything.
1: He was like a teenager that. too, right? When he yeah, was
2: it's all, yeah, it's he it, was.
4: Yeah. It's like wild dogs with Momstein in the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was
2: it was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Was that on yeah. trap? No, or was that?
3: Uh, yeah,
4: it was on trap. Yeah,
2: yeah. 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 Well, why don't you throw up uh, some contact info before we head out uh, where people could get to uh, buy the book, buy your albums, yeah. the vinyl and, and everything else. Uh, so
4: the yeah, so the book is rusted metal as Bob showed earlier. Um it's northwestmetalworksmusic.com is the is the website. We've got copies up there and um, yeah, plenty of copies of the book still available. We're keeping that around for a while, um, and then uh, more records to come. And I just want to I want to give a shout out. Joseph was phenomenal with Sanctuary. When I saw him, they did the Refuge tonight as they showed the shirt, and we saw him up in Seattle, and they were awesome. And I've, i I saw him three it. times before that with Warrel and. You did great justice to him and his legacy, and I'm really excited about seeing what you guys do with the new record.
2: Yeah. So. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah we'll definitely find out. Why don't you, on you uh, throw yeah. out your contact uh uh there, uh, Lenny, uh, as far as uh, Sanctuary, Lenny and Joseph, where people could uh, reach Joseph. the band?
0: Where do they go to find us?
2: Oh,
5: it says <laughs> sanctuaryofficial.com.
2: Sanctuaryofficial.com. Okay, right. And again, great book. Yeah. Uh, Dave Reynolds does a good forward there from yes. Metal Forces, an old pen pal. Or oh, yeah. Steve Hammonds was more of a pen pal, but I knew all those Bernard Doe, all those guys from the early days, and uh, I know they were big fans of that scene, but Great book once again, uh, Rusted Metal. Rusted it's like a metal. goddamn
1: phone yeah. book. It's
2: so it'll take hours to read, but great stuff. <laughs> it yeah, yeah. brings, brings you yeah. back to those early days of uh, you know, just the whole U.S. metal scene in Seattle again was such a big part of it yeah. pre grunge. So, uh, once again, I want to thank uh, all you guys for coming on and uh, you know, definitely promote these guys by the book. Uh, definitely check out sanctuary once you go out you'll uh, hopefully be out in europe by next summer and do some shows here in the states once things get back to normal hopefully soon and um yeah thanks again guys for joining for that
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, no thanks course, you. thanks guys it's great talking to you and yeah definitely yeah. looking forward to just hearing some new sanctuary and then james yeah this is fantastic i'm i got a lot of work to do with this still
0: <laughs> a lot of work i'm looking forward to that queen's right book james yeah yeah that's right definitely, yeah. definitely
4: i forgot to mention as kind as dave reynolds has been with doing the the liner notes for the overlord release we did and for doing the introduction for this book we're very fortunate to have paul Suter is doing the forward for the queens book as well wow. nice. there you
2: go well say hi to mr suitor man yeah me. he's for actually down friends. there in la Okay. So. Yeah, he moved to Canada. Yeah. He was in Canada. Yeah, now he's back
4: down in L.A.
3: That's right. how I found him. We so. got
2: him in the early '90s, our late '80s, early '90s, and I like nice. quite a bit. He was doing some nice. publicity. Yeah. yeah, really no yeah. What's, what's that?
5: Did you talk to James Barton, the producer?
2: No. Yeah, but no, we. So we're I still hoping to be able to talk about.
4: to Jimbo and yeah. a couple of the yeah. other guys. We did have a, a interview with Neil Kern. Um, our, mm-hmm. my, my two co-writers are Brian Naren and Brian Heaton, who ran the, he runs the anybody listening Right fan site. And he had a oh, message board. Um, he interviewed a bunch of the guys in Neil and Pamela Moore and all kinds of people. And Brian's been every step of the way with Brian Naren and I in this book. And, and uh, yeah, he had a great interview with Neil Kernan talking about Rage for Order and, and mm-hmm. some interesting stuff around that. Uh, so definitely, but we're hoping to talk to a couple did of the other. I, I had what's that? Did you get Jimbo? Not yet. We're still oh, hoping uh, to. I got a couple contact things. Where
5: was. Was. Um you I did a record at his house. Like oh wow oh. yeah 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 <laughs> uh, yeah I could set that up. Uh, he. Uh, he had some really funny stories about Jeff, so uh, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me see if I can uh, wrangle yeah. up. contact. Oh, yeah,
4: for sure. If you mm-hmm. if you want to, yeah, recommend or whatever, we wouldn't turn you down. So uh, yeah, Tom great. Hall, we talked to actually for Rusted Metal, and we had a yeah. lot of stuff with him as well. And we we definitely same kind of thing. I wanted to talk to people that were, you know, involved in the band. To whatever degree, management, producers, engineers, all that kind of thing, crew people, and
2: did you and talk to Cliff Bernstein?
4: Cliff Bernstein, no, I'm but we're gonna
3: try.
2: <laughs> he In might be tougher box. to get he through to. Met,
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> all right, guys. Once again, man, cool. it was a pleasure. Definitely yeah. support these guys by the book, and uh, good luck with yeah. that Keep us posted on on definitely on the Queen drive For Book. Sure. And uh, a sanctuary, guys. Definitely keep us posted when you guys are out touring again. And we'd love to have you guys back on. Absolutely. Absolutely. That'd be yeah. great. Yeah. All right, yeah. Guys. All right for for guys. All right. Thanks
1: a lot, guys. All right. You guys.
2: Bye-bye.
5: Thanks
1: a lot. Thank you for listening to the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast. Subscribe and listen to all episodes by going to our pages on iTunes, Spreaker, YouTube, Spotify, and more. You can listen to all other episodes and access up-to-date information and news on the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast by going to our website at www.shockwaveskullsessions.com. Email all comments, questions, and suggestions to shockwaveskullsessions at gmail.com.
0: All right, that was a lot of fun, wasn't it? And you know what else is a lot of fun? The CMS Podcast Network. That's right, CMSPN.com is the address. Make sure you go over there. Make sure you watch the episodes there, you listen to the episodes there,
1: and maybe you even just subscribe so it's delivered to your phone, to whatever podcasting software you use, but do it from CMSPN.com. Once again, CMSPN.com, CMSPN.com, CMSPN.com. We'll see you next time, fucks.